The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is an honor and privilege to welcome Amy Califa. She is the producer of the award-winning documentary, Two Angry Moms, and most recently the author of Lunch Wars, How to Start a School Food Revolution and Win the Battle for Our Children's Health. Amy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Linda. We met on a super shuttle. We were both going to the Greening Schools National Meeting, and I had seen your film, but we had all of this windshield time to talk about our combined work, and I knew that I wanted you to be a guest on my program. Your documentary, Two Angry Moms, we should probably talk a little bit about that and how you became interested in school food. It was kind of an an evolution for me. You know, it started out as just a personal kind of story where I had my own issues with, you know, some chronic health issues, migraines and and allergies and things like that. And I I learned over time that what I ate really influenced my health and then uh, raised two healthy daughters and brought them up on, you know, as healthy a food as I could provide for them, mostly organic. But of course, you know, they're kind of, they they eat whatever, They, they like their junk food too. But it was always kind of a, I felt like it was my secret life, uh, my food world, and it didn't really intersect at all with my professional world. I'm a filmmaker, and it was kind of something that I couldn't talk about in that world. And sometimes I would propose, like, hey, how about if we make a movie on food and health and politics? And it just wasn't sexy, really, until the headlines from the CDC came out stating that this is the first generation in, in our nation's history that is predicted to live shorter lives than their parents. And I said, you know, I really need to do something about this. And I I decided I would make a movie, and various things happened that were just wonderful coincidences that led me to focus on school food. And I realized this is an educational issue. What's going on in schools? How? What are kids not just being fed, but what are they learning about food? And I was, frankly, pretty shocked when I found out. And then it was just all about timing. As I made the movie, suddenly this started to become a headline issue. And what I thought would be just a little documentary turned into a, a pretty big topic, really. And it's kind of kept me going ever since. So the movie came out in 2008, and I'm still in the food school food world. Well, it's interesting. You know, you talk about how you became an angry mom. You visited your, your daughter's school. You found out what she was eating instead of the lunch that you typically packed for her. And you found uh, out that was, I think, kind of every parent's dismay. Um, right. You know, you work hard to pack a healthy lunch. And when I went to uh, my daughter was in middle school. She's now in college, and she still hates it when I tell this story. But hopefully, she's not listening. <laughs> I asked the the food service director at her school if they could show me how the lunch system works. They have a computerized system, and a lot of schools have this now. And I was not aware, and I bet a lot of parents don't know still, 
that you can actually get a readout of everything your child has purchased in the cafeteria. Now, we had put a little bit of money on account for her for the days that she forgot her lunch or she wanted a little something extra. And when she did the readout for my daughter, I saw that on a daily basis she was purchasing chips and fries and Rice Krispie treats and Pop-Tarts, things that I really didn't even know they were selling every day at school. And so that ended up being the first scene in the movie of my surprise at, at my child's uh, lunch check. And, and you know, it's something that every parent needs to know about and that you can go to school, you can see what your child is eating, and I urge parents to go and have lunch with their kids and really experience the food in the cafeteria. It's an important first step. Absolutely. And you also quote Senator Tom Harkin in your book. And I I love this quote because he comes out and he says, we've got these cartoon characters selling poison. He calls junk food poison. And he says, because that's what this food does. It poisons our kids. And you describe how schools undermine, really, parents' best efforts by having these foods available. You have some statistics about how many parents say that they really don't like the school food or the foods that are offered. So you've got a statistic where 75% of parents think the food offered at school is not very nutritious, and yet 45% of children buy school lunch at school, plus these a la carte items, and you talk about the disconnection there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the a la carte is supposed to be changing based on the new federal guidelines that are going into place this year, which means that it's supposed to be held to the same standards as the, the what we call the subsidized lunch or, you know, what's commonly known as the hot meal. But if parents aren't aware of what the kids are, are consuming and they don't bring it to the awareness of school administrators, then everybody's going to turn a blind eye because there's so much rationalization in the school lunch program. You know, it's, if you talk to a food service director, they're going to say, well, we don't have enough money and we have to sell the junk food in order to break even on the lunch program because we don't get any other funding from the district. You know, you're going to hear all kinds of rationalizations like that. And, as you know, what Senator Harkin said is there's absolutely no excuse, for, and I agree with him, for offering bad foods to kids and so I went looking for solutions and that's really what the movie and the book are all about or what are districts that are paying attention to this what what have they done how have they made these changes and how are they making it work and it can be done when you focus on the issue so that's the really most important thing is to make this become an important issue in your community in your school district and then the change can happen. You know, it's like bullying in some districts has been a big issue, and there are all these consultants that come in, and they train teachers, and they work with the kids, and they do assemblies to raise awareness about this as an issue. So we have to see this as, as important, as dangerous as, a, you know, something like bullying or pesticides on playgrounds. You know, th- these things that have made headlines, school food, is as important. It's just maybe more insidious. Well, now the Institute of Medicine has come out. I guess maybe they do a report every five years. I know there was one in 2006 that had looked at childhood obesity. Now we've got another one coming out talking about, you know, the whole weight of the nation issue and how are we going to address the tragedy of childhood obesity, which, as you say, is going to lead to shorter lives of our children, the most important people in our lives, really. And the recommendation is that because children spend so much time at school and they receive at least a third of their calories from the school meals, 
that the schools should be a focus of mm-hmm. change. And so I can't imagine a better tool to use in making school change than your book, Lunch Wars. It's really a guide. As you say, you include case studies. You include quotes from wonderful people who have made changes. It's a guide to how to. Yeah, I tried to write it as a handbook. You know, there's nine chapters, and it's sort of the kind of book where you could jump to the chapter that interests you, whether it's policy or school gardens or farm-to-school programs. You know, it's organized so that things are focused by topic, or, of course, you can read it cover to cover because I interspersed a lot of these inspiring stories throughout. But I think what the Institute of Medicine is seeing is, you know, as an important educational setting schools to teach kids, it's really part of, I guess I would call it a holistic approach that you you have to not just feed kids differently, better, real, whole foods. You also have to teach them about the importance of food, not only on their health, but as a cultural value. If you look at a school lunch menu from France, I don't think anybody in this country would believe (laughs) <laughs> that's really what kids eat. There's a, a woman, American woman, who's doing, a, I can't remember her name now, but she's doing a wonderful blog um, on school menus from France, and they have a four-course meal, you know, little, little kids on a daily basis, and it's all really what we would consider gourmet food. So they consider this very important to educate a child's palate, and it's a cultural value, and we need to at least take some lessons from that in this country and, and incorporate it in the curriculum because it not only impacts an individual child's health, but if you look, it's tied into the whole issue of sustainability, you know, our agricultural system, our local economies, and all of this is impacted simply by what we choose to eat and, and schools because they are such large consumers of food and food products can be a really great part of the solution on a larger scale, too. Well, I love the way you do connect those dots between the school food and the global climate and health and politics, and you you make it all come together. But you just mentioned a very important term, cultural value. And in, let's see, I guess this is chapter, this is in the preface, actually. And you talk a lot about how our schools have made unhealthy food socially desirable. And we allow the corporate industrial food system in, which basically teaches our children that it's fun and sexy and cool and and desirable to have junk food. And it really sets us up to be at a loss because the children are receiving all of this information that is usually in direct contrast to what they might be hearing at home and certainly what we hope they're learning in the health education classroom. There's a wonderful quote um, in my film by uh, Kelly Brownell, who runs the Rudd Center at Yale University, and he says, well, there's a lot of food education going on these days, but it's all being done by the food industry. Right. So the latest thing this week, there were headlines that, um, that, you know, there's a wonderful photograph of Ronald McDonald presenting a $1,000, you know, a giant $1,000 check to a school district ostensibly for health education. And so they're offering these um, these grants to schools for, um, you know, what they're calling food and nutrition education. But every single grant is a photo op for Ronald McDonald to go into the school 
and present a, a check. So, you know, who, what are we teaching our kids? It's a mixed message. They're so confused, and, and, and the kids are the first ones to point that out. You know, you teach us one thing in health class, and you, you serve us something else in the cafeteria. And it limits the amount of critical thinking that can go on between the teacher and the students because I think that what happens, at least this is what I've learned from people who are studying this issue, is that when somebody gives you money, you're going to be less likely to question their messages. Yeah, I mean, it would be wonderful if this could be a a teaching opportunity in schools to work with the kids, you know, as part of media literacy to say, what is the message when Ronald McDonald is presenting a a check for for health education and, and get the kids to think critically about that? And there are some programs that are doing just that, that are looking at advertising. And, and kids, you know, especially like a middle school child, will get very indignant when they feel that they're being targeted and, and used by somebody just for, for their, you know, or, or a corporation for their own profit. So that's right. It's, it's really important that, that children are taught this at an early age, too. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And you also describe some lesson that your daughter brought home where the the question was, if Julio has 24 Skittles and Kim has eight M&Ms, how many more candies does Julio have than Kim? And you describe how, okay, so we've got a multicultural name now in the equation, but the apples and oranges have been replaced with branded items. And you, you talk about how in the filming industry, you're pretty much told don't show brands because we don't want to give credit where it may not be worthy and we don't want to give free advertising away. And then you bring the camera into the school and all you see, you can't help but get branded items on screen. Oh my goodness, yeah. I would, you know, my, my blur tool would come, would be very busy if I were to blur every brand that you see in a school cafeteria now. So, um, and that's part of the marketing strategy of these companies. They, they say so quite overtly that it's the idea to get kids hooked on their brand from an early age, and, and there are studies that show children as young as two years old will prefer the identical food, whether it's carrot sticks or whatever, in a, you know, in a, a branded, brightly colored, colorful package versus, um, you know, a, a, a plain ceramic bowl. So it works, branding. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Amy Califa. She is a wonderful filmmaker. You may have seen her film, It's Two Angry Moms, about school food. And she is most recently the author of Lunch Wars, How to Start a School Food Revolution and Win the Battle for Our Children's Health. And that's what we're talking about today. Amy, I want to talk about some good examples. So we've seen the problems, the branded industrial food. And your book is a handbook. And it also gives examples of really good things going on. And you talk about your first encounter with the chef in Long Island at the Ross School, Ann Cooper. She's known as the renegade lunch lady. And Chef Ann Cooper has transformed school food. And she wakes you up to what can be possible. And in the course of writing the book and doing the film, you meet others who have made a change. Tell me a little bit about some of those remarkable people out there. Oh my goodness, I, it's it's been fun because when I when I made the film, I had a hard time finding really good examples. You know, they were few and far be- between, and it, it took quite some research to be led to the good ones. And one of them, by the time I, I got to um, 
follow Ann, Ann Cooper on film, she had taken over the lunchroom in Berkeley, California, and that really was the most famous example of uh, a, a model for transforming school food with the partnership of Alice Waters and the Edible Schoolyard. And I really wanted to find others, and so I did. And in writing the book, which I ju- just came out this past year, I was able to follow up with a number of those people. So let's see. There's a chef um, named Tony Geraci who had been in a, a small town in New Hampshire, and in the interim he had taken over the school lunch in Baltimore, which is a you know a really large and very challenged city where I think 95% of the children were eligible for the free lunch program. And he developed a 30-acre urban farm in the city of Baltimore that he you know he got the students growing their own food there, and he really just he he's full of ideas, and it's exciting to bring somebody like that and have them come and transform a system. And he himself, in the film, you know, he said there's a quote from him where he says, I get the irony of the fat guy talking about nutrition, and he was, he was obese. And in the interim, he had lost 100 pounds, and I said, Tony, how'd you do that? He said, I just listened to my own advice. So it's this idea of we can transform ourselves, we can change our food system, We can transform ourselves individually, but also as communities, we can do that by just hiring the right people. And very often, it's hiring a skilled chef like a Tony. And since then, I keep meeting more people who are doing this, and they've all been influenced by one of a small handful of of people who started this, you know, Ann Cooper among them. Mm -hmm. I just met a a chef named Jamie Smith out in Santa Cruz, and he's been um, running the school system there for a couple years now. And he's sort of the next generation, so for him this is normal. Of course he sources from local farmers, you know, and he's a trained, skilled chef who'd worked in in fine restaurants before this, but the school system knew what to do because they had heard about these other examples, so they hired him, and he he just completely transformed it, and and the parents and the kids are thrilled. Well, funding is always an issue, right? Mm -hmm. Funding is what opens the door for the soft drink machines, the a la carte sales, and for people who do wonderful projects like start school gardens, there's always this issue of how do you get dollars up front to start the program and how do you convince a school board that this investment is worth it in the long run? Yeah, it's tough. It's a, it's pay now or pay later. And I mean, everybody knows it's like, what is it? One, I don't know how many, $190 billion a year that we spend on diet related sickness. So we know we're going to pay for it, but we don't have it in our educational budget right now. The wonderful thing that you mentioned about school gardens is they really don't cost a lot at all to build. In my area, I live in Connecticut. We need fencing to keep a lot of critters out, so that's the biggest expense is the fencing. But we've been building school gardens. You know, that's one of our goals is to build school gardens in every school in the state. And for uh, somewhere between one and $2,000, we're able to purchase all the materials needed. And we also find that, you know, many, many people and businesses are very willing to donate items in kind, whether it's seeds or tools or fencing materials or bricks or soil or whatever, to a community project like this. And so it's a really wonderful foot-in-the-door kind of way to get started raising awareness because then when the kids start growing real foods in the garden, and, you know, these are all organic gardens, and they, they pull a carrot out of the garden and they wash it off and they eat it, they realize they like carrots, they like vegetables, and then they want that. They want to see that in the cafeteria, and it's kind of a it's a trickle-up phenomenon. So that's one really good way is to get a PTO project going, get a school garden, 
And then suddenly, somehow, the rest of the ideas start flowing for how do we fund this in the cafeteria on a, a more regular basis? How do we get more fresh fruits and vegetables in there? And, you know, it, it, the economics can work. It's, it's a matter of juggling things, but there's usually a lot of waste in the system, too. And, and there are consultants now who can actually come in and identify ways to make this work economically. You've got a great quote in Chapter 6, Farm to Cafeteria. Marion Cobb, director of the National Farm to School program, says when food service directors see kids eating something, they sometimes find more money to pay for it. And I love that. It's it's convincing people by this children's actions, and they realize that it's such a great investment in their future. Yeah, and, and you know, Melinda, it's these farm to school people, they're really the another major fulcrum for this change. Uh, there's a woman in, in Connecticut, Jane Slupecki, who says to me, just get a farmer to come in and talk to the kids. It's kind of a know-your-farmer program. And then have the farmer talk to the food service people. So it's a person-to-person kind of thing. And usually it's just a, everything starts with a conversation. And then the food service director might say to the farmer, well, what do you have that we could use in the cafeteria? Oh, boy, do I have apples? Do I have potatoes? You know, whatever it is, okay, so let's start with that. And then the program can grow from there. But she really emphasizes that this is kind of a one-to-one, just get the conversation started movement. What about the infrastructure? Because it seems to me like during my own course of trying to change things and make the food better, I realized that I came up against two big barriers, and the biggest ones were cost, funding, and the second one was infrastructure. So a lot of our schools were built when there were fewer students, the kitchens are small, they're antiquated, they need to be updated. Gosh, there's even a school in my community where there wasn't even a kitchen built with the school. All the food was going to be brought in. And so we need to sort of revamp our schools so that they have the facilities that they need to prepare the apples and potatoes that are coming in fresh from the farm. Absolutely. You know, Melinda, there was a a couple, I mean, this is a big issue infrastructure on all ends. And and if you're asking for fresh food, you know, how do you get it delivered? It's not just one giant truck that brings it all in. And then where do we cook it? We don't have the facilities. And I guess for the past 20 years or so, most many schools have been built without kitchen facilities because of the, the... fast food, you know, all you need to do is be able to heat and serve, yeah. but it's changing back, and um, a group of lunch ladies, and this, I wish I could remember where, I'm thinking it might, was it Pittsburgh? Just last week, they petitioned for the, a new school that's being built in their community to, to be built with a kitchen, and, and they won, so I think <laughs> we're reversing the trend, and I have a lot of examples about infrastructure in the book, because that is such an important roadblock. What some communities are doing is the schools that do have adequate kitchen facilities are becoming um, like a hub for other schools that don't. So the prep will be done at this one school, like a central kitchen, and then they'll deliver it to the other schools in the district or, or you know, have a few central kitchens and, and deliver it to the ones that don't. So that's a great model. Bigger cities are trying to put in like a really big industrial kind of kitchen that will serve the whole city, San Francisco. They've been working hard. One woman in particular, Dana Waldo, has been trying for about 10 years to get a central kitchen, and it looks like they're going to get one this year. And then they can hire a chef and 
start using the economies of scale, but in, rather than purchasing and, and getting these big national volume discounts from chips and things like that, they can use it to, to purchase locally. So that's a great way to do it. And, and, you know, the other thing is that the school meals, school lunch program is, is an institution that's been around for many, many years. And so there is actually an infrastructure for delivering commodity items to the schools. So a lot of the chefs are now working hard to just get better commodity items from the government so they have better raw materials to work with. But it, the infrastructure for doing that is already up. So it sounds to me that you started out with your film, Angry Moms, org is your website where people can learn more about the film and the new book. But you started out with two angry moms. There are two of you. It's you and there was another woman. Is that correct? Dr. Susan Rubin, who I had met through a, a friend, and you know, I went looking for a, a mother who was leading the way. You know, I wanted to know what do I do? What do I do? And uh, I was introduced to Susan Rubin, who had been working in her community for ten years. And when I met her. She was so frustrated that she'd formed a, a countywide coalition, and they were actually beginning to have an impact on not her own school district, but another district in the county, and that was the district where we filmed. We followed them for, through the course of a school year to see how they could make transformation to their lunch program, and, and so that was sort of the backbone of the film in addition to the other locations that I, I went to film model programs. So. Yeah, Susan said one day, we're just a couple of angry moms trying to get better food into school. And I said, that's it. That's the name of the movie. Well, I w- And the idea was to grow to two to two million because at the time we read a quote from the Texas Secretary of Agriculture who said it's going to take two million angry moms to change school food. And, and we're getting there. We've got lots of help now. I agree with you. It was a message that I received as well from my own school board, and that was, we need many voices. So if this is an issue that concerns you, I highly recommend checking out Amy's wonderful book, Lunch Wars, How to Start a School Food Revolution and Win the Battle for Our Children's Health. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make an observation, and that is that I think you have gone from an angry mom to an active mom and a hopeful mom. Am I correct? Oh, most definitely. You know, the title is there to get attention, but, yeah, I mean, and I think anger is a wonderful motivating force, and I, I'm very gratified to see that uh, the movie's been able to make an impact, uh, you know, in the sense of just getting people talking, starting a conversation. So certainly, I'm, I'm happy, and I'm. Uh, how can I say this? I, I, I'm yes, I'm definitely active, and I, I feel that more good things are going to come. Absolutely, and I. There was a quote that I read from Jean Bolin, and she said that anger or outrage is a symptom that we feel when something we love is being harmed. So I think the feeling of anger and outrage about how our children are fed is absolutely appropriate and how wonderful that we have a guide to take us through and make a difference. So I want to thank you very much for both the film and this incredible handbook, Lunch Wars. You've got a website. I do. I have actually angrymoms.org is the website, and we've just put a sister site to that. So if you go to that site and click on Join the Movement, it will take you to our new social network where um, anybody can find other people locally in their own community. We've got a, a map with push pins, and you can find each other by zip code. You can start your own group 
on the site and, and get connected with other advocates. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that we're just getting started. So I hope lots of people will sign up for it. Amy, thank you so much for doing this work. We've been speaking with Amy Califa. She is the author of Lunch Wars, How to Start a School Food Revolution and Win the Battle for Our Children's Health. She's also the producer of the award-winning documentary, Two Angry Moms. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Amy. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Melinda.